Hello and welcome to the January 17th edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I'm Romy Kokratsky, and with me is my colleague, Anthony Bardaway. Hello, we have a few stories for everyone today. We're going to start out with some updates about the threatened Russian invasion of Ukraine, and then we're going to go into what was, seems like an actual attack by Russia on Ukrainian government websites. We'll also be covering the current situation in Kazakhstan, including the protests and the after effects. A few updates about Ukraine's former president, Petro Poroshenko, who's facing treason charges. And it's also the old... Old New Year weekend, a rather interesting holiday that's celebrated throughout Ukraine, but especially in the Carpathian area. With all that said, let's get started. Unfortunately, the most important news out of Ukraine for yet another episode, and unfortunately for several episodes in the future, is the gradual Russian military buildup along the Ukrainian-Russian border. Ukrainian intelligence estimates that there are at least 100,000 Russian soldiers currently deployed alongside the border, as well as in the Russian-occupied territories in Ukraine. Now, this is all pretty established information. The large strokes of it have not exactly changed all that much from our previous two episodes. However, there is one update which I find a bit more concerning than the others, which is the level of organization that is now occurring within the military buildup. The most important equipment addition to the Russian forces now is Iskender missiles. The Iskender is a mobile short-range ballistic missile system that is especially useful at destroying entrenched fortifications, and it also contains some somewhat advanced anti-radar uh, features. Now, the, uh, the concerning thing about these Iskenders is that up until now, much of the Russian military buildup has been focused on assets as the battalion and smaller tactical levels. The Iskenders, on the other hand, are an army-level asset. Now, these army-level assets are... The things that, well, as the name would imply, things that are much more vital to the mission of these very large-scale units. These units that would be needed for an actual invasion and not just a minor incursion. And by adding these Iskenders, these larger-scale assets that are organized on the larger level, it's a way of saying that the proposed invasion itself will be on a larger level, essentially. Now, this is in addition to many other tank battalion, things like that, that have been moved in from far out east, including like deep into Siberia, Buryatia. So these movements are coming from all over the, the very significant landmass of the Russian Federation. And as we talked about last time, this is a very not insignificant uh, logistical feat that they're trying to do here. This is not the kind of thing that you would do just as a minor ploy. Like this is expensive it, this requires many man hours. It freezes up uh, transport assets that Russians would are not able to use now because they're being used for Russian military assets instead of civilian and freight assets. So this is all building up to, again, a much more uh, troubling situation that, while it is still my assessment that it is saber-rattling, I feel more likely to say it's maybe 60% saber-rattling, 40%. Uh, now, my estimations, mm -hmm. given all that's happened, and we'll get into uh, what exactly happened during the week of negotiations that we've just had between uh, Western powers and between Russia. My estimation is that the chances of invasion now are very likely. Talking about the Iskanders specifically, one of the very worrying aspects of them is that they are capable of equipping variable warheads. 
This goes from cluster munitions, uh, which you can imagine as sort of upgraded versions of barrel bombs, many, many, many munitions going off of a central warhead, as well as fuel air explosives like thermobaric weapons and chemical weapons. They are also capable of being repurposed as tactical nuclear weapons, though for obvious reasons, given the proximity of much of Ukraine to Russia, I would not rate that the chances of tactical nuclear weapons being used in the case of any invasion as very high. At the same time, as Anthony, you mentioned, a lot of these, uh, a lot of this equipment is being moved all the way from Russia's Eastern military district, which encompasses most of the far east of Russian Federation territory. And this is a long way to bring stuff. That It is a long way to get, it's one thing to rouse barracks that are already in the central military district, that are around Moscow, that are already on the border, but you're talking about moving thousands, tens of thousands of tons of men and material, you know, thousands of kilometers from Asia to Europe. This is not a minor feat. So the movement of these missiles, as well as, you know, related alt, uh, artillery systems, um, radar jamming systems and so on, make it seem less like saber rattling to my eyes and more like serious preparations for war. And we always have to say over and over again, even if it is saber rattling, there rattling doesn't do much good if there's no saber there as well. So whether or not the the final trigger is pulled, the gun is loaded. Exactly, and that is a gun being held basically to the temple of the Ukrainian nation. Beyond the direct military movements that we've seen, as I mentioned, this past week has been a whole bunch of negotiations in Europe, in Vienna, in Geneva, all between Western powers and Russia. In particular, there were three main stages for these negotiations, though they pretty much all went the same way. There was first a bilateral meeting between the U.S. and Russia at the start of the week, followed by a NATO-Russia council meeting and ended with an uh, OSCE, that's the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe meeting that happened uh, towards the end of the week. These talks all basically revolved around so-called, uh, or rather as Russia is calling them, security guarantees, and I say that with air quotes, uh, that it wants from the West. And these guarantees basically are a written confirmation from NATO that Ukraine and Georgia will not be offered uh, membership action plans. That is a path to membership for Ukraine and Georgia. Russia wants it in writing as part of a formal treaty or a decree that NATO will not attempt to integrate Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. Their second major call was for a rollback of NATO infrastructure in Europe to 1997 levels. This is This would mean that NATO military infrastructure would need to be rolled back from current NATO member countries in the Baltics, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Obviously, both of these guarantees were non-starters from the moment that Russia proposed them. But since Russia is holding this loaded gun to Ukraine's head, the West was obliged to negotiate over them. So they started with the bilateral talks, and in the beginning, Russia was very much pushing for the U.S. to decide, basically, uh, Russia very much wanted only the U.S. to be involved in the uh, in these negotiations. Obviously, the U.S., while still one of the world's major powers, 
is not the only voice in the 30 member alliance that is NATO. So these meetings ended inconclusively. The U.S. made it very clear that it was not about to relinquish its support of Ukraine, that it was not about to make any decisions about the fate of Ukraine. Without Ukraine, um, a I believe the State Department has even made it a foreign affairs principle. Nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine is the handy little slogan that they came up with, uh, meaning that no negotiations about Ukraine's fate, about its future, should be decided without the presence of Ukrainian representatives. Those are two very fundamentally different philosophies of how international relations are supposed to work. Uh, so Russia is basically saying that there are great powers in the world and everyone else is like traded like trading cards between them. And this was really how it worked uh, in the aftermath of World War II with the Yalta Conference. Uh, Russia wants another Yalta. And also in the 19th century up till the run-up of World War I. Yeah, you know, the classical great power conflict of, I mean, look at the scramble for Africa. Every European country deciding which part of Africa is the, the, the territory of who with no input from the actual Africans about, besides Ethiopia, of course. So, the, so this is a very... Um, well-trodden uh, well trodden and classical view of how these international relations are supposed to work. But then the United States is trying to do something a bit more liberal, even if the results are not always as such, where these countries are not pawns and have to and get to determine their own fate, which is, of course, we have to say here, we're not backing every aspect of American foreign relations. and this Far, is, far, far from it. And this is very much not how America treats every country in the world, but we are not a South America podcast, for example, where Ukraine... Or an podcast. Africa podcast, or a Middle Eastern podcast. We are an Eastern European Ukraine podcast, and in this particular instance, the American uh, take on things is the correct one. Yes, and again like to stress very strongly that we're talking specifically about U.S.-Ukraine relations and drawing no inferences or implications for any other aspect of U.S. foreign policy. But in this case, uh, the principle, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, uh, took center stage during the uh, negotiations. Obviously, the Russians have been none too happy with this. Um, in fact, a, a Russian diplomat complained during a press meeting after one of these talks that he did not understand what the West's obsession with Ukraine was and why so much time during these talks, which were triggered because Russia threatened to invade Ukraine, spent so much time talking about Ukrainian security. This was a, a confusing and complicated subject for the poor Russian diplomat who simply could not wrap his head around it. After the conclusion of those talks, where the U.S. obviously reaffirmed its support for Ukraine, it countered Russia's threats with threats of its own, that it would defend Ukraine, that it was drawing up sanction plans, um, and some of them um, have been revealed already. We'll get to that in, in just a moment. Following the bilateral U.S.-Russian talks, we had the NATO Council Russia talks. This was a meeting of Russia and every and representatives from all 30 NATO nations, uh, including NATO nations that are currently quite friendly with Russia, like Hungary and Turkey. But NATO did pull together to show a united front. Uh, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg repeated multiple times that NATO is ready to support Ukraine. Several NATO member countries, especially the Baltics and Poland, pledged to send military aid, including weapons, to Ukraine, um, even without a Russian invasion. Though NATO's overall position is that if the invasion occurs, then NATO will do something. Um, though what that something is has obviously not been revealed. 
Russia expressed its <laughs> quote-unquote disappointment with the results of these talks, and it was further disappointed by the results of the OSCE uh, Russia talks. Well, Russia is itself a member of the organization for security and cooperation in Europe, as strange as that may be. And during those meetings, again, the Russians reiterated their position. Again, they were rebuffed. The OSCE talks were the only negotiations that week where Ukrainian representatives, despite the nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine principle, the OSCE talks were the only talks where Ukrainian representatives were present. And following the, the conclusion of all of these, Russian diplomats really started ramping up their rhetoric in particular, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov stated in basically no uncertain terms that uh, I am paraphrasing, but I'm not paraphrasing too hard, that Russia's patience had, quote, run out and that it was time for action. Uh, and that action uh, involves some, quote, military technical uh, maneuvers and moves that Russia will now take to defend its security. Now, I know what that means. Anthony, you know what that means. I think all of our listeners know what that means. Uh, Russia has, without using those exact words, but using words that are very close to that, have outright said that they are ready to invade Ukraine. It may still be saber-rattling. Afterwards, Russian diplomats said that they were still ready for additional talks. They made a sort of, oh, let's not be too hasty gesture uh, following the talk. They said that they were awaiting written responses to their uh, so-called security guarantees from the United States and NATO next week. On Tuesday, Lavrov said that he was going to present the results of the, this week of negotiations to Russian President Vladimir Putin. It's not like they have commenced their invasion just yet. As Anthony pointed out, they are still moving material to the border their buildup is estimated to only reach its zenith towards the end of January. Whether that means that they will wait to invade until then, or they'll wait to decide whether to invade until then is unclear. Of course, we are still talking about Russia, and this is not what you would call a transparent and friendly nation that is willing to explain all of its motivations. Uh, and especially Putin is known for his recidience in ever giving any concrete answers to anything. So that is where we're at. Russian diplomats have made a lot of very threatening moves. The West has reaffirmed its support for Ukraine, and everyone is waiting for the other shoe to drop. There is also some uh, political moves happening within the U.S. legislature. We're not, we're not politico here. I have no desire to get into the the ins and outs of what goes on in Washington. That's a topic for a whole different podcast. Which will not be ours. But the, the central thing here is that uh, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas attempted to pass an array of sanctions against the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and the companies that are constructing and running it. For a bit of background, uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is a pipeline built through the North Sea connecting Russia directly to Germany. This is an accompaniment to Nord Stream 1, which already does so, and allows Russia to bypass the two overland pipelines, one of which runs through Belarus and the other which runs through Ukraine. Yes, and America has been a large uh, opponent of building this, partially because it undermines Ukrainian security. There's elements of it being a competitor to American liquefied natural gas. Lots going on there, but basically Ted Cruz tried to pass this law in order to put sanctions on the, the companies involved with Nord Stream 2, which failed in the Senate. 
Now, this is in the midst of several other rather serious Senate fights involving nature of filibusters, that kind of thing. But in the end, this specific bill failed. Now, at the same time, the Democrat, Democrat uh, Robert Menendez is passing a, trying to pass a similar bill, but goes specifically after Russian oligarchs. So, Romeo, you know a bit more about what this sanctions is. Can you just, just give a rundown of what, the, what they will be? Sure. U.S. Senate Democrats are looking to impose very serious restrictions on Russian activity in case they invade. This is not a pre-invasion uh, deterrent. This yeah, it's is a, it's a tripwire. It's a tripwire, basically. If Russia launches military operations against Ukraine, these sanctions would kick in. Again, this is only a bill. It has not passed. So it is still up in the air whether these sanctions would be implemented or not, even in the event of a Russian invasion. If the Russian military and if Putin's whims move faster than the U.S. Senate, uh, which is not a good bet in terms of if you want to put money on the Senate, uh, they are not known for their speed. Not Yeah, not to get uh, partisan here, but I do kind of favor the more preemptive approach being proposed by the Republicans as opposed to the reactive approach proposed by the Democrats on this. Quite a shift from our usual political position. Yes. Regardless, uh, the sanctions that the Senate Democrats are proposing are pretty significant if they were to take effect. Uh, specifically, the Senate Democrats bill would sanction companies involved in international banking in Russia, meaning the SWIFT system of international bank transfers, which currently regulates basically the entire world's international bank transfer system. Uh, sanctioning that would have the effect of cutting Russia off from global banking entirely. Again, the bill is not passed and the sanctions are still a bill. Um, they'll doubtless be argued upon countless, countless hours up until whatever moment they are passed or not. The bill would also personally sanction Putin and the upper tier of the Russian government, including uh, the prime minister, the defense ministers, and so on. It would personally freeze their assets abroad. It would personally ban them from travel to Europe uh, and the United States. And of course, it would also place sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Whether or not these the sanction package would go through is a question for closer watchers of the U.S. democratic process. In my eyes, the suggestion of these uh, sanctions, including the suggestion to cut off SWIFT, does present a significant deterrent to Russian action. At the same time, Russia has not shown any signals that it is considering or that it has been affected by these threats. Perhaps to Russia, this is saber-rattling from the United States. European countries like Germany, who is uh, the largest economy in the European Union and a pretty big world power on its own, are very heavily opposed to sanctions on NS2, to and, cutting Russia and off. And this is the main uh, reason why the Democrats voted against the Republican bill on this, was that they said they did not want to draw a line between the U.S. and Germany. Exactly. Be they basically explained it as that the United States and Europe has to put a united front up right now, and if they act in this way against Nord Stream 2 right now, it would alienate one of its most important European partners. It would be nice if Germany extended the the same the same uh, idea to the United States and to Ukraine that uh, solidarity means having to give something up yourself sometimes and not just having people pander to you, but that but is not something that the Senate has control over. The German line has been pretty consistent um, throughout the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. 
in that the NS2 pipeline has nothing to do with uh, the conflict. This is, of course, patently false. In fact, numerous international organizations uh, and heads of numerous organizations have already called Russia out for using its gas supply to Europe as a weapon. In fact, the uh, Russia has been hiking gas prices by restricting supply to Europe. This has had the dual effect of raising gas prices in Kazakhstan, and we'll explain how that occurred a little bit later on this podcast. But Russia has already been using this supposedly non-political tool as a political weapon, uh, and of course, a pipeline that would allow Russia to bypass Ukraine and trade directly with Germany and directly with Europe would obviously be not in Ukraine's interests. This episode took rather long to edit, and there have been a few updates from the time of recording to the time of release. German Foreign Minister Bayerbach made her first foreign visit of her of her tenure to Ukraine in order to speak on issues surrounding this conflict. Now, Bayerbach comes from the Green Party, which has historically been quite favorable towards Ukraine and, and supporting Ukrainian interests within the German government. However, this was clearly not enough to significantly steer German foreign policy. First of all, Germany is not behind removing Russia from the SWIFT system as a part of the sanctions. And she's also directly said that Germany will not be selling weapons to Ukraine. So in between her trip to Kiev and her trip to Russia, she has repeatedly voiced Germany's interests in supporting Ukraine in this and supporting Ukrainian sovereignty. However, the Germans have been much slower to provide Ukraine with the tools it actually needs in order to do so. Words help, but now is the time for concrete actions. Foreign Minister Bayerbach has also stated that the Minsk process should remain essentially the only game in town in mediating between Ukraine and Russia. But it is in no way built for purpose to deal with the threat of this magnitude. On the other side of the spectrum, though, the United Kingdom has been extremely supportive of Ukraine and has been sending it numerous weapons and other supplies in order to in order to bolster the Ukrainian military. And American Secretary of State Blinken will be making a very short notice trip to Ukraine. I'm saying this tomorrow as I'm releasing this now, but by the time you're listening to this, probably today, uh, Wednesday the 19th. Meanwhile, as we talk about the potential Russian attack on Ukraine, a an actual one occurred, although not quite so serious as an Iskander missile attack. And this was a rather broad-based cyber attack on Ukrainian, mostly government websites. Was did it go much further than government websites? No, it was uh, state institutions and uh, ministry websites, uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Ministry of Education, uh, and so on. It was not so much an attack as it was pretty much vandalism. Uh, the site contents were replaced with an image of a uh, message that basically threatened Ukraine. It claimed to have stolen Ukrainians' personal data that will soon be leaked, though and, no such and this leak is has on, occurred. on a, a service called DIA, which is an app that a lot of uh, Ukrainian official documentations are on, your passport, your Yeah, yeah. DIA was also affected. Yeah. Um, and DIA is a e-government app, basically, um, that allows you to store your passport digitally, your COVID certificate, as you mentioned, digitally, um, and offers a variety of other government services. Um, DIA was also uh, 
was also uh, a victim of this attack and was inoperable for some time. Though overall, the the effects beyond that message and Dia being down uh, did not seem to be so serious, aside from obviously the broad-based nature of, of the attack itself. Yeah, Dia claimed that it was only an attack on their website and their actual data was not affected. But this does raise a larger problem of of cyber warfare that Ukraine has been affected by quite severely within the past few years. Now, shortly after the Russian invasion, there was a cyber attack that took down much of Ukraine's uh, electricity infrastructure. And that that probably was the most important cyber attack. And then anything since then hasn't quite measured up to that initial round. But part of that is just because Ukraine learned very quickly that they had to protect their cyber assets and turn to places like Estonia that really specialize in this kind of thing. And Ukrainians themselves are pretty technically adept. Ukraine has some of the best internet infrastructure in the world. The Ukrainian IT sector um, is quite well known and quite well advanced. Dozens of international companies uh, outsource their development, uh, software development needs to Ukraine. So Ukraine is is a pretty advanced country when it comes to cyber attack and uh, information warfare. And of course, having dealt with pretty much near constant cyber threats during the uh, Russian-Ukrainian conflict, it's gotten a lot of experience in handling that. Yeah, they're, they're very Various hackers are going after Ukrainian internet assets pretty much on a constant basis. Yeah. Um, Now, what's curious about the uh, attack this time, beyond the broad-based nature of it, uh, and this is not so much serious, but simply curious fact, there has been a lot of sort of false flag attacks in Ukraine that are then attempted to be pinned on the Polish side or on Polish actors, including this message, which was posted in three languages, in Russian, Ukrainian, and in Polish. The messages were basically threats, oh, Ukrainians be scared, um, bad stuff is going to happen to you, we stole all your data, very, very grade school kind of cyberbullying, to be honest. But the fact that the third message was translated into Poland is an interesting note given previous kind of Polish false flag attacks, um, most notably Polish... False, false flags to make it look like they're Polish, just to be... Yes, yes, clear. or uh, to make it look like Ukrainians are attacking Poland. Yeah. Most notably, this was uh, the bombing of the Polish consulate in the Western Ukrainian city of Lutsk a few years back, which also uh, was made to seem as if they were Ukrainian nationalists attacking this consulate. It, it was not. Um, these were Russian-connected actors. It was later discovered during the investigation. The fact that these threatening messages were also posted in Polish. Just an interesting note. Also, the Polish government itself and lots of Poles obviously noted that the Polish translation was really shoddy. It was simply a machine translation of the Russian text, not written in a native or conversational Polish way. So in terms of it being a Polish operation, not very likely. Another amusing note is um, cybersecurity experts in Ukraine noted that the image, and this was a composite image, it was a a few vaguely insulting pictures attached to a text message um, in JPEG form. And the image had geolocation data tagged to it that set it as occurring or originating from a parking lot outside uh, the University of Warsaw. Again, this is a very poor attempt at a false flag because images that 
that are created on your computer from whole cloth do not usually carry geolocation data. Photographs taken on smartphones do because smartphones have GPS modules that instantly feed into your JPEGs. That's why most social network sites now scrub uh, geolocation data when a picture is uploaded, though not all of them. But if you take a photograph on your phone, it will contain geolocation data unless you turn that off specifically. However, if you go into your paint program on your computer and create an image and then post it, it will not have any geolocation data of any kind. Now, the issue with trying to make it look like a Polish false flag, the, 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 the Russians have also done this with Hungarians, trying to make it look like there's some big conflict between Hungarians and Ukrainians, which say what you will about the current Hungarian government on the kind of low, low level of people. It's not really, it's not there. Now, to put some background to this, Ukraine and Poland do have a bit of a history, to put it mildly. Uh, a lot of Ukrainian independence movements have been directed against Poland. World War II, there was a significant conflict between Poles and Ukrainians. If you look at some of the old nationalist literature at the time, there was quite a lot of Polonophobia from the Ukrainian side and quite a lot of Ukrainophobia from the Polish side. However, this is all pretty much historical. Even the most diehard nationalists in either country may have some vague ideas about the other being some kind of historic enemy or anything, but this is so just theoretical and outside the realm of everyday life that it's hardly worth mentioning. Poland and Ukraine are very close friends. Even a lot of these debates are happening between like historians that may not necessarily get along very well, but it's the realm of men in tweed suits. Arguing in academic language. Arguing in academic language yeah. about the nature of UPA and the, the various uh, ethnic cleansing operations that happened decades and decades ago. Not the kind of thing that has any relevance on modern life. In fact, the Polish government has pushed in contravention to basically every other uh, immigration policy that is ever promoted has pushed for greater and easier access for Ukrainians to obtain work visas in Poland, specifically because it needs Ukrainian workers. And Ukrainians on their side, great numbers of them do go to Poland seasonally for work, especially during harvest season. So Poland and Ukraine at the moment have very little actual arguments. They are both pretty united against Russia. Economic ties are very strong. And while there is still a level of casual um, and in Poland's case, sometimes officially backed discrimination against Ukrainians, those are all in the grand scheme of things, very minor issues that are very unlikely to result in cyber attacks or bombings. And there is definitely an element uh, to this of Russia treating the Russian-Ukrainian conflict as being somewhat rooted in these deep, you know, historical, cultural conflicts that... Or in Russia's case, their failure to understand what these conflicts are about. If you recall um, Anthony Putin's uh, article that was published uh, under his name, where he spoke about the historical unity of the Russian and Ukrainian people and his non-comprehension of why these two brothers would ever fight for any reason whatsoever, because we're just all so happy to be under Moscow's thumb. Yeah, so with this framing of this very grand scale identity-based approach that Russia's taking, I could see how how they could somehow kind of miss out that other people have put aside their their old ethnic conflicts because working together is nicer 
than fighting each other. They apparently <laughs> can't do it well enough to hire yeah. a decent Polish translator. Honestly, yeah, just find a Polish guy and make it look a bit more Is convincing. Is there not a single Polish linguist working in the Russian foreign ministry? That yeah, and, and honestly, as, as much as we say that everything is all is all peachy between Poles and Ukrainians, I'm sure you can find like five Polish nationalists who are still horrifically Ukrainophobic who would be willing to do this kind of thing. And yet Russia can't. And is forced to rely on Google Translate. It's, it's just an complete absurdity as you you cannot understand this conflict you cannot understand russia cannot understand what's going on under over here without a certain comfort with absurdity for international topic of this episode, we take a look at Kazakhstan. In the time since our last episode, Kazakhstan erupted in the largest protests of its independence. Now, these were mostly, you can mostly categorize these as anti-austerity. Well, they began as anti-austerity. They began as anti-austerity, but as these things go, they compound every problem and concern that exists within a society tends to coalesce when these kind of massive protest events happen. So they begin as anti-austerity where essentially the price of gas doubled overnight. The initial spark was due to uh, an end of subsidies for uh, liquefied petroleum gas. This is a cheap alternative to gasoline, to benzene, that a lot of Kazakhs use, have converted their cars to run off of, again, because it's cheaper. But due to Russia's manipulation of gas prices to Europe, this, of course, meant that gas prices everywhere else, including Kazakhstan, went up. In the course of uh, reforms, the Kazakh government removed subsidies from uh, liquefied petroleum gas, causing, as you said, these prices to double pretty much overnight. That meant that people were no longer able to drive their cars. And Kazakhstan is a rather large country with rail links, yes, but those rail links obviously are not capable of handling the entire population's transit needs, especially over short distances. So the several um, cities in Kazakhstan erupted in protest, first protesting the removal of these subsidies, but again, they quickly morphed into general anti-government protests. Now, these protests were quite rapid. They developed very, very rapidly as you were following them. They, within the first few days, protesters had seized city halls, um, police stations, security outposts. Uh, qu quite a lot of government infrastructure was taken almost automatically. In some places, the police stepped down and refused to stop them from happening. In others, it was more of a crackdown. In general, in the western region, Regions, there was um, it was it was easier to deal with. While elsewhere, they there was more violence perpetrated by the police and also in response against the police. The Kazakh government, being not exactly what you would call a liberal democracy, responded pretty predictably. They began cracking down on protesters very forcefully. But again, due to the fact that uh, many police units refused to participate in these crackdowns, the Kazakh. President Takayev was forced to ask for support from the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization. This is a military alliance consisting mostly of post-Soviet states, including Russia, 
Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and so on. And Takayev asked, made an appeal to the CSTO to send in military units to help pacify uh, his country. Takayev began referring to the protesters as terrorists after protesters were discovered to have seized uh, weapons as well. And as terrorists, he essentially asked these foreign, he told these foreign soldiers that they had permission to fire whenever they felt it was necessary yes, to fire. They were given the, the authority to shoot without warning to put down these quote unquote terrorists. Again, the evidence for them being actual terrorists is basically non-existent. In a uh, rather absurd turn of events, Takayev claimed that the um, Kazakh financial capital, uh, not the administrative capital, but the financial capital of Almaty uh, had been seized by 20,000 terrorists after the CSTO so-called peacekeeping operation had finished. Uh, Takayev claimed that the corpses of these so-called terrorists had all been stolen out of the morgues. For our audio viewers, which are only viewers, <laughs> this is not a video recorded podcast, uh, Anthony currently has a uh, very depressed look on his face. It, uh, that is... That is some high level conspiracy theory right there. I that uh, that is that that's intense. That's intense for me. <laughs> now th this uh, this intervention, this foreign intervention that the government invited has is over. Most of the soldiers have returned back to their countries of origin. The state of emergency has been lifted, yeah. and it seems. And there had been some concessions to the protests. Uh, the government was replaced almost immediately. But this could also be seen partially as subsidies a, have been subsidies have been, has been reinstated and finally this this the cult of personality around former president Nazarbayev Nursultan, dictator the former dictator Nursultan Nazarbayev has essentially been dissolved uh the capital's name um some government sources have stopped referring to the capital as Nursultan some have simply referred to it as the capital some background on Nazarbayev he was a, like many post-Soviet dictators, he was a member of the ruling Communist Party in Kazakhstan. Uh, Quite an important one. He was yes. like very high up within the Soviet establishment. Like he was, he had the Soviet Union not fallen apart. He was in line to be very high up in the Politburo. Following uh, independence, uh, Nazarbayev took power in Kazakhstan and ruled the country for 30 or so years. He stepped down in 2019 from the post of president, but he remained the uh, chairman of the Security Council, which is responsible for military and security affairs in the country. So while he did step down, he didn't exactly retire or relinquish all of that much power. So that's the the kind of role that uh, Nazarbayev played. And over these 30 years, he got quite full of himself. He renamed the capital city, uh, formerly Astana, to his own first name, to Nursultan. He put up statues of himself basically in every single town square and village in the country. His family members were installed as heads of state enterprises at basically every single level. In other words, him and his clan still held Kazakhstan, a very poor country despite the wealth of resource riches, including oil and gas that it has, pretty much held it in a grip. Um, and the gas issue is also quite relevant because Kazakhstan supplies gas to Russia, but it buys back that gas at incredibly inflated rates because Kazakhstan has no facility to process that gas. So it does all of the hard work extracting it, ships it off to Russia, Russia processes it, and then they effectively are forced to buy up their own 
products. This is classic colonial mercantilism, essentially, if you're familiar with old imperial economics. The periphery produces the goods, the core produces the finished products and sells the good, the finished products to the periphery. Exactly. So whenever anyone argues that the Soviet Union was not an empire, they're wrong. There was a lot of, in, especially within these recent years, there was a lot of uh, inter-oligarch, inter-elite conflict. Now, the theorizing that has been going on that I've been hearing from people who know much more about Kazakhstan than I do is that the that various elite elements inserted their own actors into these protests in order to make them more violent, to direct them towards targets that they wanted to be targeted. There is rumor that the black-clad men who led most of the violence in some of these cities were deployed by the Nazarbayev clan in order to, as Asian provocateurs, essentially. And again, there's a lot that's not clear um, it, in Kazakhstan. Deep, yeah. um, almost all media, domestic and foreign, was banned from the country. There was no news in Kazakhstan for about a week and a half simply because there was no one to report it. Internet access was cut off. It's only now being restored, and we're only now starting to hear um, the stories of violence and torture that was perpetrated um, indiscriminately by security forces and by CSTO troops against protesters. So uh, we may learn more about the atrocities that occurred during this blackout period. And again, that means a lot of what we think is, is simply speculation. What we do know, however, is that several members of the Nazarbayan clan, his power elite, who again held high positions in state enterprises in various government institutions have been systematically removed from power. A very close Nazarbayev ally was removed as the head of Kazakhstan's internal security. Various uh, members of his family have been removed from their directorships and CEO positions of Kazakhstan's incredibly profitable oil and gas, state-owned industries and enterprises. So from those kind of actions, we can speculate that some sort of shakeup has occurred in Kazakhstan, that some loss of influence and power for the Nazarbayev clan has occurred. How far that goes is not entirely clear and possibly will not be clear until the situation there stabilizes a little bit more. And we very much suggest that you seek out Kazakh voices in order to get the broader story about this. This is not our specialty. But one of the key points here is that the people really did want Nazarbayev and his clan gone. And and now it seems as though, to a large extent, they are. So that was one of the biggest uniting complaints that the protesters had, and it was fulfilled. Now it ended with Takayev seeming to take a the position that Nazarbayev maybe once had, although not with the cult of personality yet. But this demand was met, and it, it was a very popular thing to have happen. And... Looking at it more broadly in terms of Russia that I've been really thinking about in this case. Russia had the biggest troop contingent sent to uh, Kazakhstan under the, the auspices of this it was, it was CSTO still, It was still mission. only a, a few thousand, though. Yeah, it was about 6,000 troops. Yeah, but my my thoughts more go more go towards Putin. Um, the big question out of Russia is what happens when Putin decides to, to leave office. And one of the potential options for this was that he would step down from formal power in the position of the presidency and head towards some kind of ceremonial father of the nation type role. And in this role, still be able to exert a significant amount of influence as an aging man, not have to deal with the day-to-day -day of running a country. Now, this was the way out the Nazarbayev had taken. He had ruled the country uh, as an autocrat for so very long, and 
then when it came time to retire, he maintained this largely ceremonial but also influential position. And again, a lot of his family and his close associates and allies and keeping held, them in power, yeah, yes. held, held um, positions of great influence within the country. And when this option was uh, talked about for Putin, it was often talked about as the Nazarbayev model. Well, let's see where the Nazarbayev model took Nazarbayev. It led to them being dethroned. So Yeah, that model seems to have collapsed, at least in Nazarbayev's case. Now, there are certainly differences. Putin is much more uh, personally popular than Nazarbayev was. It is not as much of an uh, artificial cult of personality around Putin as it was around Nazarbayev. But still, Putin has to look at this and speak thinking to himself, can I retire? And the answer seems to be no, he can't. Because if power slips away from him in the slightest, he there would be the same result. And the same thing could happen to his inner circle as what's happening to Nazarbayev's inner circle now. With Putin, you've already had him seemingly step away from direct rule. Uh, and he traded places with Medvedev, with Medvedev being president for a couple of years due to a quirk of uh, the Russian constitution, which has now been quote unquote rectified. Uh, allowing Putin to more or less stay in power indefinitely as president. During Medvedev's presidency, there were already hints that Putin was exerting a lot of influence specifically to ensure that Medvedev himself did not build a power base independent of Putin. If any sort of stepping back, any sort of implementation of this Nazarbayev model would take place, Putin would be very aware that he would still have to somehow ensure that no one has a power base strong enough to challenge him like Takayev has been um, seemingly challenging and succeeding in challenging Nazarbayev. And at the beginning, again, not Kazakh expert, but as it's been explained to me, at the beginning, Takayev did seem like he would be more of a soft-willed toady than what he's now turning out to be. Who, who, can, uh, who can the retiring dictator trust in order to not take over completely from his position? And it exactly. turns out, turned out can't can't really trust anybody. I'm not going to not going to throw out too much sympathy for Putin or Nazarbayev in this chance. Um, it turns out that it's better just to have a functioning democracy when you can replace rulers through a popular uh, contest rather than having to handpick your replacement and hope they don't kill you. But maybe they should consider the other options. There is one more kind of twist to the story before we wrap it up, and that is that Nazarbayev was last seen in public in St. Petersburg in December. He has not been seen since the new year. And he, during that time, he seemed to be in very, very poor health. We can speculate on his status, what may have caused Takayev to take such harsh and apparently be successful in taking such harsh measures against uh, Nazarbayev, given that he did rule the country for 30 years and had a lot of his people in a lot of top places. It is possible that he is simply not around to enforce his will anymore. Um, but again, that is he is uh, 81 years old. Yes, he is. is he is quite old. old. He's quite old. Uh, again, this is complete speculation, but it would explain a lot of the kind of cleaning of house, so to speak, that has occurred in Kazakhstan. And just to wrap this up, I do want to echo uh, Anthony's statements to seek out independent Kazakh voices. Again, there is not a lot of independent media in Kazakhstan at the moment. Um, as I said, they've been under 
pretty much a complete blackout for the past few weeks. But uh, activists and protesters uh, are now starting to come back online. They're starting to re-engage with social media channels. And I highly encourage you to seek them out and to listen to their voices uh, and see the perspectives of what actually happens. Because we don't know. We're not there. We don't know anyone who has been there. No one has been allowed to go in or out. Everyone who was there was kicked out. Listening to the people who were there, who are now talking about their experiences, that is as close to the truth as anyone can possibly get. And that's certainly what uh, we here at uh, Ukraine Without Hype will be doing in the coming weeks and months. Now, um, an addendum to add to this is that the CSTO, the organization that the Kazakhstan government called upon to defend itself, does not exactly have the strongest record of fulfilling its actual purpose, which is defending its members from outside attack, which is what na- a mirror of NATO, but significantly weaker. Now, one of the member states, Armenia, had a little bit of a war. <laughs> Uh, to put it mildly, with its neighbor, Azerbaijan, in the summer of 2020. Now, there are some peculiarities to that. Uh, Azerbaijan largely restricted its attacks to the Nagorno-Karabakh region, which internationally is recognized as a part of Azerbaijan rather than Armenia, though some of, there were some attacks that spilled over into Armenia proper. Well, where was CSTO to defend its member from attack rather than dealing with the internal issues of another one of its members is not exactly fulfilling its purpose. Now, this reminds me of the Warsaw Pact, which the CSTO somewhat was able to stand in to replace. Now, the Warsaw Pact never actually defended any of its members from outside attack. Now, what it did do was uh, put down democratic uprisings within those countries using using overwhelming military force. So I can't help but see a little bit of the the echoes of the Warsaw Pact in the modern times of it only being used as a tool of repression rather than defense, which is what it is stated to be. Coming back to Ukraine for a bit of non-war-related news are the latest updates in the ongoing treason case against Ukraine's former president, Petro Poroshenko. As we said last episode, Poroshenko had been officially charged with treason and supporting terrorism uh, for what Ukrainian prosecutors say is a scheme to buy coal from the Russian-occupied Donbass region. Um, We mentioned last time that Poroshenko was out of the country on a diplomatic trip. He is now expected to return uh, today, in fact, as this podcast goes live, though uh, we will not be covering that likely until our uh, next episode. Well, I will be updating the story on if if something occurs on Monday before release, then I will be adding it to this episode. If not, it will be waiting until the next episode. In any case, there have been a few updates, uh, mostly involving a seizure of Poroshenko's property in Ukraine. Mostly the seizures uh, and confiscations have extended to various apartments he has in the cities of Kiev and Vinyansa, a couple of dachas that are like village homes that he has scattered across the country, um, and his shares in some enterprises uh, that he owns have also been confiscated. However, his shares in 
the biggest enterprises associated with his name. That is the candy company Roshen and the media companies, uh, TV channels Prima and Channel 5. Those have not been seized. Investigative journalists have discovered that in 2019, Poroshenko signed over ownership of most of his biggest assets to his son, Alexei, meaning that a court order would now be unable to seize his assets. Of course, Poroshenko remains Alexei's father and de facto still controls those companies, though not de jure, which is the only thing a court cares about, uh, meaning that Poroshenko's status as a billionaire is well in hand. Uh, Alexei Poroshenko has not been charged with any crimes as of yet, meaning that Roshan and uh, media holdings owned by Poroshenko are completely in the clear. Saying that his assets were seized is a bit of a strong statement. The Chocolate King still sits on his chocolate throne, and he still has Channel 5 and his media holdings, which are really the, the most important part of his uh, empire. Exactly. His um, party, interestingly enough, claimed that uh, his party, U European Solidarity, claimed that his media holdings had been confiscated, but the um, State Investigation Bureau, the body charged with investigating these charges against Poroshenko, have stated that they have not confiscated them uh so it's a bit of a mixed message there but given that the government would probably not keep it under wraps or would be unable to keep something like that under wraps it's reasonable to assume that the media holdings are are so far untouched we'll be obviously watching the situation closely as it develops Pershenko recently stated to current time tv that he does not expect to be arrested upon his return to ukraine despite the fact that the sip have stated that he will likely be arrested or that is that they are currently asking courts to provide them with an arrest warrant for the former president, though, again, it has yet to be granted. And given that no news of this has come out before the weekend and judges very unlikely to be working throughout the weekend, especially on a holiday that Anthony is just about to tell us, we will see what happens when Parshenko's plane touches down in Kiev. And we will see if uh, the former president really is taken uh, into handcuffs and uh, put behind bars. Okay, here I am right before release after some updates from the day. So Poroshenko landed at Sikorsky Airport where he was met by hundreds of his supporters, but he was not arrested there. Now Poroshenko said to his supporters that the reason that he was not arrested is because of the vast number of journalists and other observers within the group that were there to see things. And this is believable. I don't believe that the police would have dragged the former president away as hundreds of supporters stood behind his back, that could have led to a very serious incident. He was taken to court, though, where the court was deciding what to do with him, whether he'd be held on house arrest, in jail, etc. And these proceedings went on for an excruciatingly long time without coming to any kind of conclusion. The next hearings will be held on Wednesday the 19th. An interesting detail here is that the judge for the day, Alexei Sokolov, was himself appointed by Poroshenko in 2017. But a serious specter hangs over this entire affair. This is obviously a political trial again. This is obviously a political charge against Poroshenko, whether or not 
the crime actually happened. And these kind of political trials can only happen when there's the politicized judiciary. And quite frankly, Poroshenko did extremely little to correct that problem while he was in office. He seriously drug his heels on the creation of the anti-corruption court, and in many ways tried to simply make the judiciary corrupt in his favor. Although I wouldn't say to great success in that way. Though let's see if that process bore any fruit for Poroshenko. So far, highly doubtful. It is definitely too soon to say what effects this will have on Poroshenko's popularity. As we've gone over before, while he is the largest uh, opposition figure on, I guess you'd say, the pro-European side of the political spectrum, many others in that political direction have serious qualms about him, which in many ways led to his extremely bad results in the previous election. Now, if some of these pro-Western, reformist, uh, civil society, etc., that that sort of direction of politics uses this chance to unite behind him, then that can provide for some very uh, meaningful changes. But who who knows? That's all looking too far ahead in the future for my taste. Meanwhile, this entire affair seems to have serious echoes of what Poroshenko tried to do to his erstwhile ally, former Georgian president turned Odessa governor turned Poroshenko enemy Mikhail Saakashvili, who Poroshenko tried to strip of his Ukrainian citizenship and had, it's quite a lot to go into right now, but this does seem a bit, but there is more than a bit of deja vu happening. Anyway, that's it for now. Anyway, that's it for now. Again, not. We'll know more on Wednesday, maybe, if this court decision isn't pushed back even further. So maybe next episode we'll have something for you on this case. But really, it is stunning that Zelensky has chosen now of all times to kick up this much domestic controversy. We did say that we tried to bring more uh, light stories to you, so here's our light story for the week. The end of December and the beginning of January is essentially one long holiday season. We have two Christmases and two New Year's, according to first the Gregorian calendar, the calendar that's most used in the West, and then the Julian calendar. There is a about two-week difference between the two. And this weekend was the Julian calendar New Year, the old New Year, or... Yeah, sometimes called Malanka, Old New Year. It has a few names depending on the region that you're in. Now, one of my last good memories in the the before times of of pre-COVID travel was going to the, near the Ukraine Roman, Ukrainian-Romanian border where the Old New Year celebrations are the most lively in the entire country. The Romanians also being a different... Orthodox Christian group, so the mixing of the Ukrainian and Romanian traditions there get quite interesting. Now, this is based around a holiday play, a holiday play that involves dressing up in rather elaborate costumes of bears and demons and some problematic depictions of Romanian Jews, but no matter. We're talking about Eastern Europe here, guys. It's a pre, it's a very, very old holiday, pre-Christian in nature, and its rather pagan roots are are seen in the idea of basically scaring off the evil spirits in the dead of winter. This is, this is the kind of nugget of an idea that it's based on that you can find in many other cultures. But it gets rather elaborate here. There are essentially big old brawls in the woods, people, different 
parts of cities will compete against each other to give the be- the, the biggest and best uh, uh, shows of the play and their costumes. Little go little children love going caroling around this time. It, there's a lot. It's a very uh, I, when I went to um, Chernivtsi, which is a as a city, which a lot of uh, joint Ukrainian-Romanian history to it. That's very where, close to the uh, Ukrainian-Romanian border. Right on the border, essentially. This is the Bukovina region. The They had a very large parade of people dressed up in very non-traditional costumes, you know, pirates, uh, Lord of the Rings characters, that kind of thing. It, kind of Halloween-esque atmosphere, but also kind of tied into, say, Carnival. That, think, of, think of that as well. Think of it as kind of like a Ukrainian Carnival as well. Huge holiday, very, very fun. Um, I had, but I, I had only learned about the best parts of it at the very end of my time there, speaking to someone much more uh, specialized in this kind of thing. Apparently, if I had stuck around a bit more, I could have gone to the late night, essentially, Bacchanals, where people have giant tug-of-war competitions over rivers to try to drag people into the freezing cold water, and then getting absolutely blind drunk afterwards, as one does in these kinds of situations. Again, there are some problematic aspects to it. So if you're going to go, be prepared for some less than um, less than sensitive imagery. <laughs> but it is still a very uh, fun holiday to to take part in. Uh, and in, if you are ever in Ukraine uh, around this time and you start hearing little children go door to door and sing for candy, uh, now you know why. It's really one holiday after another. It all blends into each other. And Malanka is more or less the end of that. So happy holidays, everyone. Uh, if you come to Ukraine, go down to Bukovina, go into the woods, fight a man dressed as a bear and hope it actually is that and not an actual bear. <laughs> do that sober and do your drinking afterwards. That's how you can be sure. Mix and match. It, there's a lot of these folk traditions in Ukraine that are absolutely fantastic and quite rather undiscovered from a, a Western or American perspective. Although, although apparently from, again, what I've been told, these traditions are slowly dying off and it's not the kind of thing that uh, many Ukrainians uh, are used to, used to doing. It's very, it's a very old traditional thing. And as we're all <laughs> ground under the boot heel of neoliberal capitalism, these old traditions are disappearing along with that. Though I will say um, I was in Romania over New Year's uh, and they did have a pretty strong link to all of these uh, traditions. Even during the New Year's party I was at in a restaurant in Romania, uh, we had carolers dressed in boar skulls and uh, deer skulls and robes and so on come in and carol and uh, perform some traditional folk songs. So these traditions are still upheld in some areas, especially in Bukovina, um, the border region between Ukraine and uh, Romania. But we do recommend coming to visit. This is not hype, (laughs) simply a a friendly invite to come and discover the uh, joys and the the traditions and the culture of Ukraine, uh, assuming the Russians don't kill us all. Next up will be Maslanitsa, where you crepes, essentially, and light things on fire. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of Ukraine Without Hype, and we hope that you enjoy this podcast, and if you do, please leave us a rating on whatever podcast platform you use to listen to us, retweet us on Twitter, and follow us at at Hype Ukraine. Until then, have a fantastic week, and Slava Ukraini. Slava Ukraini.